Welcome to More Than A Few Words, a marketing conversation for small business owners. My name is Lorraine Ball, and I help small businesses become big businesses with an extraordinary crew here at Round Peg. This morning, we have a wonderful guest on our show, um, Matt Griffith. Matt, good morning. Good morning. Matt, tell folks a little bit about what you do. Sure. Um, I'm a real estate and business attorney, and my clients are primarily small to medium-sized businesses, uh, startup companies, and folks involved in real estate, particularly investment real estate. So that would include investors, property managers, professional landlords, and the like. But we do a lot of a lot of startup work. We also do mergers and acquisitions. So we help people grow businesses like you do. Awesome. And um, if you are interested in following Matt on Twitter, be sure to look for his handle, Ask Matt Online. And if you are following the conversation on Twitter, certainly look to the updates from Allison. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. Allison will be following the hashtag pound MTFW. If you have a question for Matt, you can call in as well at 805-285-9865. So let's go ahead and get started. Matt, we're going to focus, I think, more on the startup side of your business. As a lawyer, what are some of the things that you tell every client when you sit down with them if they come to you and go, hey, I've got this great business idea? Uh, the first thing I tell folks who come to me uh, with a great business idea is, uh, "Where's your?" Bu- I ask them where their business plan is, and uh, that's when you get the deer in the headlights look, and they they have no idea what a business plan is, or they've not actually sat down to take the time to create one, and consequently, uh, startup businesses often. Uh, fail or struggle because they've not thought through every process. And so they don't have a clear idea of where their market is, how they're going to get to market, what their costs are, what their projected profits will be, and so forth. And I know that's a subject near and dear to your heart, but but the business plan is the place to start. Even if it's just a couple pages, that's a much better place to start than with a blank sheet of paper. You know, uh, and and you're right. This this is business planning, and this whole idea of getting your ideas organized is important to me. I have kind of gone through this transition where I understand that not every business has to have a cross the i's, dot the t, you know, uh, dot the i's, cross the t's type of plan. But getting a three ring binder, putting the key questions in that binder and working through and answering them is really critical. Um, next thing, let's assume that you get somebody and they walk into your office and they have that business plan. What comes next? Well, the, the next thing we take a look at is uh, protecting their personal assets from liability risks that might arise from running a business and then also protecting the business itself. And so we often call that inside-out or outside-in asset protection planning, meaning we're worried about threats that might come from our personal life to invade the business or business threats that might invade our personal life. 
And so we have a series of tools and mechanisms that we can put in place to protect both personal assets and business assets. And so we begin that process and that dialogue. So what are some of the things that businesses can do to begin separating their personal and their business assets? Okay, so the first step is to understand that asset protection for a small business owner or a startup comes in three critical steps or three critical tasks. And they are, very simply, first, use some form of limited liability entity that typically is a limited liability company or a corporation. Second, uh, find and develop a strong relationship with an insurance agent who understands your business and your personal life, and they can transfer business risk onto the insurance company and away from you and your business. And the third step is to uh, come up with a, a plan and set of documents and mechanisms, which I call good business practices. And good business practices, I think, starts with the business plan, but it includes things like regular uh, annual checkups with your accountant, your lawyer, and your insurance agent at a minimum. And then depending on the business, we do more specific things. So, for example, if you're a business that has real estate, you need to have some plan in place to make sure that the real estate is properly maintained, that your your business guests, or we call them business invitees, uh, aren't, aren't at risk for, you know, cutting themselves on a sharp object or tripping on a crack or whatever. And if you think about it, large businesses have these things in place. Why would we not, as small business owners, emulate what the large corporations do? When you go into a, a fast food restaurant and a customer has spilled uh, some french fries or um, a chocolate shake on the floor, the restaurant has a process for dealing with that. And that may sound simple, but you know, they put out a little sign that says, you know, wet floor, they get out the mop, and somebody's responsible for doing that. And within minutes, it, the problem is taken care of, and nobody will slip and fall on the floor. Well, we need to think about business risk the same way for our small businesses. What, what ways can we get in trouble, and how can we minimize them? And, you know, I want to go back to something that you said because I know it's something that I didn't really think very much about in the early days with my business. Um, the idea of having business insurance, even if you are a home-based business. I was inviting, in those days, customers to my house. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think even, and I guess I'd like to know your feelings on this, even one-person shops. Do they need to be looking at these processes and, and insurance to protect themselves? I think it's really important when a professional advisor like yourself or a, or a lawyer or accountant um, is trying to educate a client uh, to use uh, visual representations and stories because clients are more likely to remember the rules, the lessons, if you illustrate. So let me share a, a quick story with you. I had a client that was in the construction business, and he had an office above his garage, and he would have uh, one of his superintendents visit him twice a week, every Monday morning and every Friday morning, 
the superintendent would come to his home office. He would go up a back staircase uh, to the meeting room above the garage where my client's office was located. So one winter morning, the superintendent shows up, and he's walking up the driveway, and he slips on ice that my client had not cleared in time from the night before, and he shatters his elbow and his arm when he falls on the on the hard uh, driveway surface. And he was out of work for weeks because if you swing a hammer for a living and your arm is in a cast, it's really hard to swing a hammer. My client calls his insurance agent and says, hey, uh, my superintendent got hurt. Um, I need to make a claim here and get this guy some, some pay because he can't make a living at the moment. And the insurance agent had to deliver really bad news to the client. He said, client? Uh, you're running a business out of your home. You have no business insurance risk coverage on your home because your home is where you sleep and eat and take care of your family. It's not a business location. You should have told me you were running a business out of your home and we would have added that coverage. There's no coverage. And so my client got to pay the superintendent's salary for several weeks until the guy's arm healed up out of his pocket. Um, because there was no insurance to cover that risk. Yeah, that that hurts um, a lot, and I think that uh, goes to the point of separating your personal and your business and making sure that you treat this new entity as a business. Um, I want to yes. I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about contracts. Um, and this is something that we, we kick around a lot at Roundpeg. Um, I've been doing the business a long time. I have a lot of longstanding relationships, and I, I tend to do business on a handshake. And 99% of the time, the handshake works really well. How bad a mistake am I making? Uh, well, it's the 1% that, that kills you because, unfortunately, you can – you can have 99 business transactions in a row that just go perfectly well, and you generate profit. Let, let's say out of 99 transactions, you generate profit of $100,000. And then you have that one deal that goes bad, and it costs you $25,000 in attorney's fees to deal with the problem because it blows up into a big lawsuit. Well, guess what? you just cut your profit margin by 25%. And not a lot of businesses can survive those types of hits. So having good contracts that minimize those risks is really important. And the other thing it does is a contract is also an opportunity to market additional services or goods to your customers and to explain to them exactly what you're going to do and that there are other things available that they could, that they could get from you. Um, they, they simply have to add that on. So contracts serve multiple purposes. But the main purpose of contracts serve is it properly sets expectations so everybody knows what everybody else is going to do in the deal. And so feelings aren't hurt, there aren't misunderstandings, and you completely eliminate uh, – uh, if you have reasonable people working together, contracts eliminate, just completely eliminate the reason for disputes. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to fess up that right now Allison is in the corner nodding her head feverishly um, uh, because she has often advocated for this. And we actually have started, we, we've incorporated contracts into 
um, our newer proposals. And I think it is a, a bit of a mind shift, kind of a feeling that you're growing up, but I think you're absolutely right. The times that we've had it in writing where a customer has said, oh, but I thought you were going to do this, being able to highlight that section of the proposal of the contract certainly can help. Well, your, your uh, round peg I put in the category of, of artistic service providers, and, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, that means that there's a degree of art to what you to what you do. And if I were an artist and someone commissioned for me to do an abstract painting, I could paint some interesting work that I thought was awesome, but the customer may hate because art is subjective. And so what art the problem that artists have uh, is that there's scope creep and undefined scope. And scope, scope creep means you do a project for a customer, and the customer says, oh, well, can you, can you change that blue logo to red? Oh, that looks really good, but it would be really cool if we had a little yellow border inside the red, and so forth and so on. And they make a series of, of requests, and the next thing you know, you're redesigning their project entirely. And the scope of your work creeps and creeps and creeps, and all of a sudden you've completely deviated from the original intent of the agreement. Written contracts prevent scope creep if they're written properly. And here's the other thing they do. Contracts are a great mechanism for determining who the winner is going to be and the loser is going to be before a lawsuit is filed. And people tend to not file lawsuits if they know who's going to win and who's going to lose. Or I should say they're more likely to settle and to avoid a lawsuit if they know in advance that they're going to win or they're going to lose. People generally go to court when they think that they have a better shot in court than they do by their contract. Interesting. Okay. Uh, good, good reasons to consider contracts. Let's talk about a different type of contract, and particularly at the start of a business. We see a lot of people come together in partnerships. And uh, I, I know that you know Larry Marietta, Marietta Financial, and when I was working on a project with a partner, I remember him sitting down as my accountant and counseling me rather loudly not to do it. Um, and I, I remember talking to you about it and, you know, your attitude and, and that of other small business attorneys is more go into it, but go into it with appropriate agreements. What kind of agreements should business owners have in place if they are entering into a partnership? Well, let's start off with uh, what a partnership is, and it's very simple, and you can have a partnership in, in ways that you never anticipated. So simply put, a, a partnership is when two or more people engage in a business activity with the intent of sharing profit. That's it. Two or more people agree to go into a business venture with the intent of sharing profit, and bam, you have a partnership. And when you have a partnership, you have all kinds of rights and responsibilities to each other. And the general rule is stay away from partnerships uh, in the old traditional sense because there's a lot of liability risks. My preference is if two people are going to go into business together, they should, they should either be a limited liability entity such as a limited liability company or a corporation, 
and then we'll document their relationship in, in the traditional way in the in the documentation for those entities. Or they should be a joint venture with more of an independent contractor type of agreement. If they're going to be co-owners of a business uh, under a limited liability company, their relationship is defined by a document called an operating agreement, and it's a pretty standard form. Uh, but there's lots of options and choices within a, within an operating agreement. For example, you can have buy-sell provisions in an operating agreement or not. It's, it's a choice. Similarly, in a corporation, there are articles of of uh, are articles of incorporation and bylaws which describe how the company is to operate and run. But then you also can have agreements between the shareholders which are similar to buy-sell agreements, and you can have all kinds of agreements between the parties. But if you're going to be a co-owner of a business, this is a very important concept. If you're going to be a co-owner of a business, you must document your relationship with your business partners, with your co-owners. So just like any other business transaction, the buy-sell agreement and the uh, organizational entity agreements are essentially contracts with your partner. Yes, they they are. And I had, for a, a example, um, a conversation just recently with, um, oddly enough, with two lawyers who own a building together. And I asked them recently, what happens if one of you dies or gets sick or moves away or, you know, any, any number of things that can happen to us? And they had no plan for how the business would operate in the event of one of those events, those things happening. I call these triggering events. So what would trigger a change in our relationship? And, and I describe the triggering events as the big Ds. Death, disability, disinterest, dishonesty, disability. What happens if one of those big Ds happens to one of the business partners? What happens? And most people don't even think about it, but they de- they really need to. They really need to address the big D's. Absolutely. I What comes to my mind is my husband's uncle had inherited a business from their father, and they had been in business together for 25 years. And one of the two brothers uh, divorced his first wife, married a second woman, and then he died. And fortunately there were very, very clear um, buy-sell provisions and a very clear uh, description of how the business would be managed so that the remaining brother did not end up in business with one or both of the wives. And depending on uh, what the divorce agreement had been, if there hadn't been clear buy-sell, there very, very well could be a situation where both of those women could then be involved in the business, which would have just, on ever so many levels, been a disaster. That's right, Lorraine. But what buy-sell agreements, whether in an operating agreement or a corporate buy-sell agreement, do for for partners in the context of one being married or both being married is this. We we always say uh, no one wants to go into business with the ex-wife, but everybody wants to protect the widow. And what that means is if if uh, you and I were business partners, your husband's a very nice guy, 
but I may not want to go into business with him upon your death because my relationship is with you, not with him. But if you were to pass away, your family should receive the benefits of the business value that you've created in our relationship. So I should have an obligation to buy you out so that so that the value or your your share of the value of the company goes to your heirs upon your death. That um, that was something that when I first bought the building here at Roundpeg, my partner and I discussed. And at the time when we were buying the building where there wasn't a lot of equity, we felt it would be a pretty easy thing for one or the other of us to buy out the, the spouse and buy out whatever portion of the equity existed. But had the building had more value, or if we had continued to own it jointly for an extended period of time, we both agreed that we would have to put insurance an insurance policy in place that it would allow us to, to write that check um, if one or the other of us, if something should happen to one or the other of us. Um, we've got just a few minutes left. And I'd love you to talk about any other sort of area of a business startup where you tend to get involved or where business owners forget to involve their attorney. Sure. I want to um, – I have a couple thoughts I want to share. Going back to your last comment, when two or more people get together to form a business and we talk about buy-sell provisions – we have to value the business. So, in other words, if someone dies, how do we value the business, uh, creating the obligation of the survivor to, to pay the estate, you know, to pay the widow of uh, or widower of the person who passed, the partner who passes away, or is disabled, or whatever the case may be. And it's it's always funny to, to uh, talk to one of the owners about the value of the company. And, and if you say, okay, you're going to buy this guy out, what's the company worth? And they'll say, oh, well, if I have to buy out my partner, the company's only worth $100,000. And I say, okay, great. That means if the roles are reversed and your estate's getting the money, the company's only worth $100,000. And they say, no, 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 wait a minute. It's worth a lot more than that. <laughs> and it's like, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So if you're the buyer, it's worth less than if you're the seller. That's what you're telling me? And so, and what that story illustrates is uh, two things. One, human nature, <laughs> right? When we're the buyer, when they're buyer, things are always worth less. When we're the seller, they're always worth more. Okay, so that's that's the first thing it illustrates. The other thing it illustrates is the time to do buy sell agreements is in the beginning, when there's nothing to fight over. When yeah. you're when you're putting more sweat equity into the business than anything else. And people are working really hard and everybody's optimistic. That's the time to do these things. The wrong time to do a buy-sell agreement is when you got something to fight over because that's when people become less reasonable and they remember all the hard work they did and they forget all the hard work their partner did. <laughs> so it really is important to do these things in the beginning, not later. Absolutely. I think the you know that that point um, because at the point that you start the business, nobody thinks that they're going to walk away from the business, um, and you it, you you are more likely to do the buy sell agreement um, fairly because you don't know which side of the equation you're going to be on. That's exactly right. That's awesome. exactly right. And here's the here's the other interesting thing about buy sell agreements. And small businesses. So I looked on the uh, 
New York Stock Exchange yesterday for Roundpeg, and I couldn't find it because I was thinking about buying some shares in Roundpeg because I was thinking about our call today, and I couldn't find it. So I looked on some other uh, stock exchanges, and I couldn't find Roundpeg listed on any of those stock exchanges. So if I wanted to buy Roundpeg, I guess I would just have to come to you. Or vice versa, if you wanted to share, uh, sell some stock in Roundpeg because you wanted to expand your building or buy a new piece of equipment and you wanted to fund it through capital, you're going to sell some more shares. You can't go to the stock exchanges and offer some more shares. You know, we're talking about public offerings, right? Because Absolutely. there's no market for for that. So what buy-sell agreements do is they create a market for small business shares where a market wouldn't otherwise exist. And so you actually create more value for yourself and your partner by doing buy-sell agreements in a small business uh, than if if you did. Because if you don't have that kind of agreement, there's no obligation uh, or right to buy out your partner if one of those big Ds happens. So uh, people really should think about buy-sell agreements as an opportunity to create value for themselves um, and create their own market because it just doesn't exist otherwise. All very valid reasons to do a little bit of planning on the front end um, when, when it's all very exciting and you're not very tired. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. Matt. This has been awesome. I uh, I hope that the folks that have been listening have been taking notes because I think you've covered a lot of really important things for small business owners to keep in mind as they're starting up and, and trying to do things legally on the front end. If people want to learn more about you uh, and your practice, where do they go? They can go to a couple places. Um, I have a blog site that has a lot of material for small business owners. It's askmathonline.com. That's A-S-K-M-A-T-T online.com. Or they can go to my law firm website, which is indiezlaw.com. That's I-N-D-Y-A-I-Z-L-A-W.com, indiezlaw.com. They can go to both of those places, and uh, they also can uh, uh, submit inquiries if they have questions. And they can always call my office at 317-663-0650. Awesome. That is fabulous. If you have questions, Matt, please be sure to reach out. You will enjoy the conversation. Uh, Matt is uh, also the attorney for Roundpeg, and we've been very fortunate that I've only had to ask advice Occasionally, from time to time. Um, but it's right. nice to know that you're there when I need you. If you've enjoyed today's program, if you want to learn more about marketing, small business, social media, and networking, be sure to check out our blog at www.mpeg.biz. Matt, thank you again. This was awesome. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We'll look forward to seeing you in person soon. Allison, great job on the keyboard. This has been another episode of More Than a Few Words. Just before I bail out, I want to remind those of you that are here in Indianapolis, there are still just a few tickets available for Blog Indiana. The Roundhead crew will be there, well represented. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week. This has been another episode of More Than a Few Words. Thanks. 
Or let's say. 